0: That night, the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her.
1: And yet, the tower and the fire still stand, soaring to the sky. And I
2: feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology this is a production of the North American Anglican
1: welcome to the miserable offenders podcast my name is Jesse Nigro I'm the editor of the North American Anglican and today I am joined by father Isaac Rayberg and Deacon
2: Andrew Brazier. hi I'm father Isaac Rayberg I'm the rector of All Saints Anglican in San Antonio and the the uh, Uh, canon for liturgy in the diocese of cano west actually we just changed our name to the diocese of the west i feel so very official now very good
0: fantastic (laughs) (laughs) and this is uh deacon andrew brazier i serve as a chancellor for the special jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy in the anglican church of north america a little bit of a mouthful but uh we usually go by the acronym acna sjafc so there you go
1: So keep all that in mind, dear listener. Um, And if you have been following along, we, the three of us have sort of been tag-teaming reading responsibilities, but we've been going through this essay, The Spirit of Anglicanism, by Paul Elmer Moore, who some people might know better as uh, a political writer of the 20th century of a somewhat traditional or conservative bent. But um, happily, for us, also seems to have been part of uh, compiling this great work of 17th century Anglican theological literature called Anglicanism by Moring Cross, popularly at least. And so uh, this essay that is part of the front matter is a a fascinating perspective of his on the importance of what the 17th century Anglican theologians were up to. Um, Very often they're called the Caroline Divines. And uh, so we've been tracking through the first four Roman numeral sections of this essay. And you can find all this and read along on the website in the show notes. Over at Northamanglican.com And we are about to launch into Roman numeral 5 So if you gentlemen are alright I will uh, kick things off And read a paragraph here And it looks like a big one <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and we can uh, pick it apart How's that sound? Let's do it Sounds good Alright The Spirit of Anglicanism Roman numeral 5 Closely connected with the distinction between fundamentals and accessories was the axiomatic denial of infallibility. One of the surprises awaiting a student of the ecclesiastical literature of the 17th century is the frequency with which this word, infallibility, occurs in unexpected places. It was the veritable bugbear of the English mind of that age As it has become again since the Vatican Council and upon the attitude to all that is conveyed by those fatal syllables hangs the ultimate philosophic difference or let us say incompatibility of temper between Roman and Anglican Catholicism and in a fashion less sharply defined between radical and Anglican and Protestantism Quote, Two things there are, says Hooker, which trouble greatly these later times: one, that the Church of Rome cannot; another, that Geneva will not. Err, End quote. and in a sweeping assertion, Hales sums up the Anglican position thus: quote, infallibility, either in judgment or interpretation, or whatsoever, is. "...annexed neither to the see of any bishop, nor to the councils, nor to the church, nor to any created power whatsoever." Quote. Now, such a statement, which might be supplemented by quotations from other and more authoritative, at least more Catholic writers, if taken superficially... Would seem to leave religion a prey to the universal flux of uncertainty, but not if full weight be given to the phrase quote, created power. End quote. Evidently, this does not exclude from infallibility those necessary truths which proceed directly from a divine and uncreated source. What Hales had in mind is exactly the addition to these fundamentals by tradition or their expansion by reason. So Laud, replying to the Romanists' usurpation of the text, I will send you the spirit of truth which will lead you into all truth, is quite explicit. Quote, all is not always universally taken in scripture nor is it here simply for all truth. For then a general council could no more err in matter of fact than in matter of faith, in which yet yourselves grant it may err. But into all truth is a limited all, into all truth absolutely necessary to salvation. A church may err, and dangerously so, and yet not fall from the foundation." End quote. On the same ground, Chillingworth drew his distinction between being infallible in fundamentals and being an infallible guide in fundamentals, and adds, quote, that there shall be always a church infallible in fundamentals, we easily grant. But it comes to no more but this, that there shall be always a church, end quote. Well, that was a, quite a lot to read, and... A lot was said there, kind of expanding on these uh, this theme of fundamentals versus additions. Uh, what do you guys think?
2: So the uh, Vatican Council uh, he mentions here is Vatican I um, at mm-hmm. the tail end of the 19th century. And uh, the main thing that comes out of that council is the doctrine of papal infallibility when speaking ex cathedra on faith and morals. So this becomes... Uh, uh, quite quite a big deal in uh, at, th- at the time that um, Moore was writing of course right and uh, continues to be a big
1: deal um, you know I don't know when, at what time the audience is uh, is listening or you know that you obviously don't have to uh, check out these episodes exactly when they're recorded but um, as of August of uh, 2018. There is uh, news, in the news is a story about Pope Francis um, asserting his authority to change what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say about capital punishment. And regardless of what you think about capital punishment, that does um, sort of bring these questions of the role of the pope and infallibility in the church uh, all right back around again it's it's uh still a fresh
2: conversation it would seem and i think yes. the fact that it was an issue in the in the caroline divine shows that um even though it comes to a head at the vatican council it's being you know it's it's, it's a persistent issue it's the, uh, the the veritable bugbear as they said uh as Moore says which always brings to mind, you know, gaming to me rather than, uh, than ecclesiastic stuff, but that's okay. <laughs> I
0: would just say, I mean, like you pointed out, Jesse, it's very timely that we're having this conversation about infallibility when the uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, is, you know, declaring, uh, you know, this to be a new teaching of the church uh, as the Roman Catholic Church, that the death penalty is no longer, um, I think the term was admissible. He was saying that it is no longer... Uh, something that a Catholic could support and it's fascinating because what is old is new and here we are reading uh, this work uh, from the early 20th century talking about First Vatican when infallibility is laid down as a doctrine. If memory serves me correctly, also the the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary was also um, issued as a a dogma of the faith, which was also something new in terms of a dogma. Um, There's always been, you know, biased teachings about this teaching about uh, the Virgin Mary being immaculately uh, conceived. So in terms of Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, I think that it shows one of our key differences is that in terms of where we find the necessities of salvation, uh, we've spoken about this before the past couple of episodes, Uh, we look to the Holy Scriptures um, as it's defined in the 39 articles. And meanwhile, in Roman Catholicism, you have the question of how is tradition uh, evolving and how does it become part of what is necessary for salvation? Since you have church councils, there's a mention in the text about general councils, the the very relatively new for the time this book was published, doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. And it, it just it begs the question for us as Anglicans, where do we find our authority? And that ultimately is answered But through the scriptures, that's where we find the authority for Mm -hmm. for things. That's where we find in terms of, you know, what is required for salvation. And then, of course, in terms of rites and ceremonies, a church may do something uh, that is not necessarily laid out in scripture, so long as it doesn't contradict or violate uh, scripture.
1: Right. Yeah, more is definitely, um, and and obviously he sees himself as simply representing what he has found within the 17th century Anglican writers, but he's definitely sort of paving a path between extremes on theological issues, on liturgical issues, um, and attempting to articulate this very specific Anglican position um, when it comes to where authority lies. And uh, and I think the the point he makes here um, about the Hales quote, where um, it's not as though we we don't believe that there is anything that's infallibly true about the church's teaching, but um, he he says you know the limitation of what we call infallible falls under created power. That is to say that as you rightly point out, the scriptures are infallibly true you know those those get the uh, go ahead but those are um not the creation of the church but rather um the gift to the church and the church is um is tasked with upholding them and so they, they have a divine origin rather than a, a created origin and obviously we can get into differences of you know how divine the church really is but that again just sort of underscores even further some of these distinctions between what uh, Moore calls Anglican and Roman Catholicism Uh, but yeah I thought that that distinction was very helpful that he made that um, he even says further uh, about Chillingworth uh, talking about the church being infallible in fundamentals and being an infallible guide in fundamentals and obviously um the classic anglican view is the the former and not the latter
2: and and he's when he does talk about the church there he's talking about the church as a whole the church universal um you know that mm-hmm. that the fact that it makes it the church is, is that it's keeping these fundamentals <laughs> and so right. once a particular body departs from it it has in some sense ceased to be uh, the, the church <laughs>
1: yeah the church with qualifications maybe you know <laughs> right um, and, and and then in, and indeed there, there I think there is a point at which departure does and can and does take place so there's
0: Something a couple of he... yeah go ahead
2: Oh th- yeah, there, there's there's a couple of um, kind of kind of offhand references to the articles he makes, um, specifically Article Twenty-One, which which in our American version we don't have, um, about um, the, the the authority of general councils, and um, it talks about when when they are when they be gathered together for as much as they be an assembly of men, whereof all not be governed with the spirit and word of God they may err and sometimes have erred even in things pertaining unto God. And I've, in discussions with um, some folks of the more higher church persuasion, I found that this is something that they have difficulties with, as -hmm. well as in Article 19, when it talks about um, the Church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome um, having erred not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith, Um, that hurts. That's a difficult thing for some Anglo-Catholics to swallow um, at times yep. be, because there's this idea of, you know, what, what do you mean a general council is there? And aren't these the, uh, you know, the, the, the councils of the church, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's like, you've you read my mind. I <laughs> had that <laughs> article pulled up. And the only thing I'll add is that, uh, you know, Jesse, you and me, I think last episode talked about how the Seventh uh, Ecumenical Council... On um, uh, images, in um, you know, context of icons, it was rejected for centuries by the Western Church. Um, right. As I recall I'm drawing back from being a history major in undergrad, so I may get the details wrong, but Charlemagne, uh, during his time of the so called Holy Roman Empire, uh, certainly rejected uh, the Seventh Council. Um, I believe scholarship has shown that the translation of the notes and the minutes and the papers that came from the council were different than what it actually had occurred. So what the West was looking at was uh, minutes that said that worship, outright worship, instead of uh, veneration of images uh, was allowed. And so that council was not recognized for centuries, but you wouldn't say that the church in the West was dissolved or was vanished during that time period. And uh, also to look at even the Eastern Church, there's a long history of the eastern patriarchs excommunicating each other due to one patriarch or one church like the church of alexandria may accept a council for some time and the church of jerusalem may not Uh, and there's really a great for those who are listening uh work done by and i'm going to butcher his name a famous lutheran historian who uh, ended up becoming eastern orthodox uh i think it's uh yaroslav it's like j-a-r-o-s-l-a-v pelican and pelican's work uh the history of the church is magnificent. And he goes in great details in length to show what is happening while all these councils are going on. How many other councils you don't hear about outside of the seven ecumenical councils were accepted for a period of time and then later rejected. And one example I can think of is after I think the third council of Constantinople, there was the Quinisext council, and yep, in the Eastern yep. Church. They they view it. I think it's also called the Council of Trullo. Memory serves me right. They view it as part of the Third Council of Constantinople. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. the Western Church and the Roman Catholic Church has not accepted that as part of the Ecumenical Council. So to this day, Rome and and uh, the Eastern Churches have a disagreement over, you know, what constitutes that Ecumenical Council.
1: Right, and I think that speaks to this uh, this Laud quote that Moore provides. Um, saying, all is not always universally taken in Scripture, nor is it here simply for all truth, for then a general counsel could no more err in matter of fact than in matter of faith, in which yet yourselves grant it may err. Um, which, you know, according to Lot, his understanding of uh, his Roman antagonists at the time was that they they were recognizing openly what we're saying now which is that um nobody seems to recognize all the councils <laughs> as and if you, as free of error
2: and if you um for our, for our more protestant leaning uh, folks especially the more reformed leaning folks listening um when you read uh calvin discussing the seventh ecumenical council in uh, in the institutes it is obvious he did not understand the council and and he was actually working off of those documents that were mistranslated or um or outright fabricated by um charlemagne and his um his, his supporters and when i was reading through the institutes a few months ago at the request of the bishop and when i got to that part i was like okay i need to study up more on this and so i went back to some of the uh the documents translations of the documents from the councils, like okay there's a major disconnect here and it's because of those really bad latin translations and um and and there was some some polemical things going on with charlemagne and 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 his supporters yeah and i think
1: you know what what this kind of boils down to 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 get back to the the point of Anglo-Catholics and I mean this was a, this was an issue for me um, entering into Anglicanism I would say uh, with a certain high church bent I think many folks who are coming from an evangelical or free church background are looking for this sort of stability you know maybe we've been taunted by uh, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends for um, believing in a Bible that their church invented, or you know, right. or, or you know, you know, there's there's this idea that um, boy, if there's a foundation out there called the Ancient Historic Christian Church, then uh, then I need to get to that bedrock. Um, and, and of course, this is fascinating here that we're still looking for an earthly bedrock and not uh, Jesus Christ. You know, but but that's sort of an aside. But but I think you know what this kind of boils down to is this belief in uh, institutional church magic for infallibility, and it seems that Moore is pointing out the Anglican perspective, which is also um, the classical Protestant sort of magisterial perspective, which is that the councils are authoritative insofar as they are faithful, right and each one of these traditions, even the super-ancient ones, right, um, sort of has those councils which they themselves regard not to be faithful. And we can say that, um, you know, well, uh, the the first six or the first seven or the first four, however you number it, you could say, well, there are those that we all agree on. Um, but that doesn't, you know, necessarily lend uh, authoritative magic by vote, <laughs> um, I think what that simply means is that that the church was faithful in those in those councils, um, and and in a way that that no one denies. And where there is dispute, um, we can look closer. But the the Protestant um, perspective is not to say that well the the Holy Spirit has departed from the church when when she makes an error, but rather just to say that. Um, No, there's, you know, as Moore is saying, there is this infallible core. It's called the Scriptures, and it's that received truth. And then when it comes to interpretation, well, you know, we do our best. (laughs) But um, very often, I think, uh, you know, I have in the past, and many of our Anglo-Catholic brothers and sisters um, can sort of make an idol of the Church to try to get it to... Um, promise and deliver on more authority and more, um, you could say, I don't know, existential uh, security than really it's capable of delivering.
0: And in terms of authority, because I know that that's definitely something that is always brought up by uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, and even those who are inquiring into Anglicanism. You know, where, do, where does the buck stop? And we point out often, I know last week, Jess, we talked about the uh, Vincentian canon, uh, but I also would point out that Lancelot Andrews, one of our own uh, Caroline Devines, has a great catchy saying that the way we, we look at our faith is one canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, those ecumenical councils we're talking about, five centuries, the first five centuries of the church and the series of fathers in that period determine the boundary of our faith. It's a good, catchy, you know, summarization that we do look back to what those early church fathers, those early ecumenical councils that are undisputed, and of course, the the Catholic creeds and scripture, ultimately, into seeing what our faith is and to understand our faith. And I would also just note that uh, throughout the, the Anglican church history, we generally have always accepted the first four councils Uh, The vast majority of Christendom has always accepted this first form. But even our books of homilies, although they reject the Seventh Council due to the same uh, error in uh, the transcripts and notes that they received, just like Calvin did his his Institutes, the rest of the homilies incorporate the Fifth Council and the Sixth Council uh, of uh, the overall Catholic and Orthodox Church, part to the East and West split.
2: Yeah, we on our um, parish website in the uh, the the mandatory what we believe section, we uh, begin with that quote from St. Vincent, then go to that quote from Lancelot Andrews, and then uh, add the uh, the uh, issues from the from the Lambeth Quadrilateral kind of as okay these are going to be where you really find our things. So you know the Holy Bible is the Word of God, sufficient for salvation in all essential matters of faith and morals the three creeds is historic summaries of biblical rule of faith uh the sacraments of baptism and lord's supper is instituted by christ and generally necessary for all christians and then the historic episcopacy locally adapted and uh yeah so we we have a long history of these summary statements which i think are really good
0: i agree that's fantastic you have it on the website
2: absolutely I think the template wanted a what we believe, and so <laughs> my webmaster said, here, could you do something about this?
1: <laughs> well, and I think this, this question of authority is um, it's a, it's a very practical one as well because, you know, we're, as Christian people living in the world, we're always faced with new scandals, either moral scandals or scandals of the faith. <laughs> and um, and of course, the church exercises this prophetic uh, voice and witness to the world to um, to be able to take this divine and eternal truths and um, and be that sort of an oracle out into a world that either accepts or rejects what those truths are, and that. Um, you know speaking with Roman Catholic friends I, I remember you know somewhat recently a friend said well what's your church gonna do if it has uh, you know if it can't say that um, that gay marriage or or issues of abortion or, or whatever sort of the moral and religious issue is today and um, you know I, I can see that this notion of having a pope or a figurehead or a magisterium you could say that that just gets to say definitively here's what we believe here's the new thing we talked about it and this is it infallibly so um but i think the important thing to recognize is it's not as though anglicans don't have anything like that we do have um bishops and pastors who exercise that prophetic role um but the thing is, is that we don't turn interpretation into, we don't raise it to the same level of authority as that of holy writ, right? That doesn't mean that we're um, pluralists or that we, we don't believe in truth, or, you know? But but rather, um, we are, you could say the church can exercise the prophetic gift, but the difference maybe is that the Anglican Catholic view is that um, we're willing to say that we might, you know, need to uh, correct this, or you know, that that this particular articulation might not be perfect or infallible, so to speak. Um, which you know the Roman Church does too. It's just more awkward because then they have to say well, we didn't mean the opposite of what we meant before, even though it really seems like we, we mean the opposite of what we meant before. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it's just more awkward when they, when they decide to sort of course correct on their doctrinal tradition.
2: Yeah, we, um, it allows us to have, at the same time, the humility to, to be reformed which i think sometimes in the uh, the quote two one true churches um institutionally they can't do that mm-hmm. but at the same time it also gives us the opportunity to uh um uh go way off course like we see in so much of the anglican community today and and seriously depart from faith and moral so it's a double-edged sword yeah
0: it is and i think that you know, what we do is we've gone towards the early church model, and as both of you know, you know, the, the early church continuously had battles coming from all directions in terms of doctrine. It might have been more focused on the uh, Christological issues of, you know, who is Jesus Christ, you know, defining, you know, in precise terms, you know, you know how much is he fully God and fully man? He's wholly fully God and fully man is the, the Catholic and Orthodox answer there are so many other pressing uh, interpretations coming from all sides and today we see it in terms of morality as opposed to the Christological doctrines. Um, I think we forget what Bishop John Jewell says in his uh, Apology for the Church of England which is written right there during the reformational time period. I think it's in the 1560s he writes it but he has this quote of, you know, we've returned to the Apostles and the old Catholic fathers. We've planted no new religion but only preserve the old that was undoubtedly founded and used by the apostles of Christ and other holy fathers of the primitive church. It doesn't get any clearer than that as to what was the intent of our English reformers.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely excellent. Absolutely, I agree.
1: Well, should we um, move on to this next uh, humongous paragraph? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let Father Isaac take this one. I, I'm going to sit it out and we'll see, see what this... Uh, What more has to say
2: here? What do you think, Father? Sounds good. Taking together, then, the two axioms in regards to fundamentals and infallibility, we can see that, that the Anglicanism of the 17th century comes to something like this. The means divinely ordained for the salvation of mankind is plainly set forth in the Bible in the story of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This truth, as Chillingworth maintained, is of such, quote, admirable simplicity, though its simplicity and plainness rather enhance than diminish its significance, as to need no inspired interpreter. But there are, recorded in the same book, other facts and doctrines, a vast body enveloping, so to speak, the central truth which, however great their importance, are not necessary to salvation, and do not open their meaning so immediately. For the the interpreting of these secondary truths, and for the drawing of inferences therefrom, upon which rests the whole structure of disputable theology, there is no oracular organ of infallibility appointed among men or in any human institution. This distinction is made clearly by Chillingworth in words that might be taken as the charter of Anglican liberalism. Quote, though we pretend not to certain means of not erring in interpreting all scripture, particularly such places as are obscure and ambiguous, yet this, methinks, should be no impediment, but that we may have certain means of not erring in and about the sense of those places which are so plain and clear that they need no interpreters, and in such we say our faith is contained. End quote. The Anglicans believed and declared that, however, the human mind might go astray in its efforts to interpret and unfold the whole mystery of God's economy of salvation, yet by the office of the Holy Ghost, the truth in its simplicity should not be lost or ever utterly obscured, and the Church, as the instrument of grace, should not fail from the earth. Good stuff. <laughs>
0: I mean, that really kind of hit what we were talking about earlier the simplicity of the essentials for salvation it can be found in the holy scriptures one of the great things about morning and evening prayer is it's sadly a lost uh, lost right in the uh, general average parish life not for all but for a lot in the, in anglicanism you always would typically cite the Apostle's Creed. and nowadays you typically don't see it until you have a baptism in the church and the simplicity of that Creed really hits what you would come across if you just read the scriptures you know the essentials for the salvation you know lived he, he died and he rose again for the salvation uh, the right
1: and this this Anglican or you could say high Protestant view even of, of the authority of the Creed is not well look this is this we believe these theological statements to be true because the church came together and and said so but rather the creed is itself uh, an extrapolation and condensing of truths that that you know according to the anglican divines could be plainly found in sacred scripture that this was this was simply uh, a truth that perhaps needed to be articulated as um, heresies and heretics presented themselves with alternative um, you could say interpretations um, but the, the creed itself doesn't, um, doesn't impose an authority that is not itself derived from the uh, infallible and divinely given
2: word of God
0: Article, oh, go ahead, Father Isaac.
2: Our Article Eight, the Nicene Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, and I would parenthetically add the Athanasian. It just got chopped out of the American version of the articles. Ought um, <laughs> uh, thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it just makes
0: me think about the fact that the Apostles' Creed, you know, confesses, you know, that, uh, that Christ. You know, Died, uh, he descended to hell. The third day, he was risen from the grave. And then we look to Holy Scripture to 1 Corinthians uh, 15 uh, 3, St. Paul saying, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And it continues from there, but there's, there's the essential core right there the faith that is being
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, again. Uh, fleshed out a little bit more in the Apostles' Creed. And so those essentials of what it takes uh, for our salvation of mankind are right there in the Holy Scriptures, in the creeds, and in uh, the gospel that is preached throughout the the Holy uh, Catholic Orthodox Church from the beginning until this day. And we Anglicans receive that and continue uh, repeating that gospel.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I'm really struck by... The, the sense in which these 17th century Anglican writers really do hit the nail on the head when it comes to I would say this perspective of you know if we want to look for a guide as to how the church ought to um, be seeking solutions for current scandals or, or questions of the faith we can look to the, the early church and see how they did it and um it, the creeds are a perfect example of well you know the the authority is scripture and what we didn't do as a church is get together and have all the bishops sort of just say well i think it should be this <laughs> you know but it was rather um it was the bishop saying no this is what scripture says this is what scripture and says
2: this is what scripture says and even in the in the context of the councils, um, th- they weren't there to try to proof text their position from scripture. Um, you know, they, they they were not really there to exegete, exegete scripture so much as to pres- preserve the faith that they had received. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is very interesting. I mean, it's, it wasn't, you know. And, and of course, that faith that was received is is the faith of the scriptures but but the point wasn't what can I get away with scripturally? it was mm-hmm. what is this faith that we have received from our teachers who received it from the apostles
1: right what what have you received, and have you preserved unto the present day rather than some kind of logical argument that as you said, what can I get away with? yeah that's a great point
2: perhaps by um by, by a, a little bit of clarification he he talks about the charter of anglican liberalism and i don't i don't think for more um that that's <laughs> meaning what we mean <laughs> in today's yeah, american yeah. context <laughs> very good point yeah. he's, he's talking more more classically um and i i don't think some of those even those theological debates versus the fundamentalists and the liberals going on mm-hmm. um in the early 20th century late eight, 19th century rather were really would be on his radar as an englishman the way it would be for an american audience um, sure. they didn't have some of those same debates but at the same well, yeah, time he's
1: probably thinking of charles gore or you know um people who of that ilk i'm guessing right so yeah not and at the, the same, same time, as the mainline Episcopal Church of today.
2: Right, right. And and I do think at the same time, this recognition that there are secondary and even tertiary matters is important to not falling into some of the errors in, in kind of the extreme fundamentalist side of things, as we would call it, you know, to the, today as Americans. Um, because to kind of that caricature of a fundamentalist, everything is a first order issue Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah i agree and um i can sort of uh as a habit i like to listen to our conversations from the with the ears of uh friends from other traditions and i can definitely hear my roman catholic friend hearing this and uh thinking to himself well, this is just a recipe for disaster, and, and look at the 20th and the early 21st century, and, and that's exactly what you Anglicans got. You, you got widespread liberalism, and, and uh, you, you, because you couldn't uh, speak infallibly about all these secondary and tertiary issues. And um, you know, I, I have a pretty good idea of how I might respond to that critique but i wonder what what uh you father isaac and and andrew would would respond how you would respond to that particular concern
2: well andrew why don't you why don't you go ahead first on this one i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna wimp out on uh being the first to answer
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'll put my head on the uh, chopping block then uh what i would say is two things is uh glass houses is that there is uh uh, liberalism and I hate using that word, but there has been uh, a constant battle in the Western churches in every jurisdiction, from the Roman jurisdiction to Orthodox to Anglicanism. And I'll be the first to admit that you see it a lot more pronounced in the Anglican communion, and I'm certainly not proud of that. But that's not because we don't have a solid foundation as to what our faith is based upon, because we have leaders who will not lead and those who have been led astray but at right. the same time i would also point out that the uh, especially the, the american uh, roman catholic church i have plenty of friends in that communion who are seeing it on the ground level also there may not be official pronouncements although uh, you know today we've got not today but uh, this past week we've got this interesting uh, opinion from the pope that's going to result as i understand it from what i've read at least in the news that uh, it's going to change the catechism of the catholic church which right to me you know no matter how you feel about the death penalty this is, you know, letting the camel's nose, you know, into the tent as to what next will be changed in terms of the catechism. Um, for those uh, in the Catholic Church, you haven't seen it recently in terms of splits or schisms, but uh, you certainly have, I'm you going know, to butcher the acronym, I think it's SSPX is the traditional Catholics who um, uh, yeah. have had issue. Yeah. And am I correct on that? Y'all correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, Society
2: of St. Pius Tenth. yep
0: there we go thank yeah. you thank you Jesse. which I so, understand is
2: basically a reaction against Vatican II
0: yes right and even before Vatican II you had the, uh, the Catholics who broke off and, and who uh, had gone their own way uh, formed a union I think it was a first like the Ultric Union and then it became the, the Union of Scranton there's you know other bodies interrelated with each other and mm. his uh, memory serves the more liberal uh, version of those Catholics um, are aligned with uh, the Episcopal Church USA and other more liberal Anglican communion uh, jurisdictions. And then you have the Union of Scranton, which are the Catholics that essentially said the First Vatican Council is a step too far on declaring the Pope infallible and uh, making the Immaculate Conception of Mary a dogma of the faith. And so there's certainly have been splits within the Roman Catholic Church, is the point that I want to make, and that the Church has been affected by uh, liberalism, by uh, ignorance of uh, morality, Uh, i hate to bring up the uh, the abuse scandal that has gone on has continued to go on has been some recent news on it but there's moral failings everywhere in terms of teaching in terms of discipline and in terms of upholding the faith but we are certainly the poster child as anglicans on getting you know (laughs) the the news as to what have we done lately but the ultimate point i want to make for our brothers and sisters on the Orthodox Isle, the Roman Isle and for ourselves as Anglicans is that we share a common problem and even a common enemy of trying to proclaim the gospel but the issue is not necessarily with where does the buck stop but you know do we have faithful leaders who are leading us back to our own formularies whatever they may be. We're gonna have disagreements with Rome as to where does the buck stop but for those who are conservative Orthodox uh romans uh, roman catholics for those who are conservative orthodox anglicans we need to be the best that we can be and upholding our own uh formularies and traditions and then come in dialogue with each other on where are legitimate disagreements uh but we shouldn't simply say well we've got everything completely in order and in-house uh right. and that would go for the eastern orthodox also i've got brothers and sisters over there who especially in the american context are seeing uh, their parishes uh, go the same route as uh, many Roman Catholic and Anglican parishes have gone.
2: Yeah, well, one of the, um, the the things we see when we do look at church history is that, as you said, Andrew, nobody is immune to this problem. And and we're certainly not in as dire of a situation as St. Athanasius was. Absolutely. I mean, where he's getting Amen. kicked out of the city and kicked out of his Episcopal see. Oh, what half a dozen times during his mm-hmm. life, and then reinstated because of uh, the ascendancy the official ascendancy of heresy. So yeah, I mean, we're it, this this is the kind of thing that just happens. Um, and, and I mean, and granted, this is more pointed at some of our uh, our our, our Anglo Catholic brothers in uh, in um, in the Continuum churches. Um, you know they. They, they rightly had an issue with some innovations that the Episcopal Church made with respect to the theology and the prayer book and holy orders. But I don't know any continuum parish, or I know very, very few, I should say. I, any is, is overstating it, but I know very few continuum parishes that, ju- that haven't substituted the prayer book with the so-called Anglican Missal, which was never authorized. And so, I mean, you're, you're you're you might be innovating in a conservative way, but there's still that temptation for every man to do as he sees fit. You know, there is no king in Israel, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so and we, we just need We just need to always be on guard against that. And that's something why I do really appreciate um, the Jerusalem Declaration from 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 the Gafcon movement, which, um, you know, our, both both my diocese and Andrews are part of. Um, you know, that really lays down, okay, here are the, here are the standards, uh, in in terms of the the formularies, in terms of, of sexual ethics and that sort of thing. And, and the reason why they're these standards is because they've always been these standards, (laughs) you know?
1: Yep. Very, very uh, well said. I'll agree. And uh, to all of our continuing
2: Anglican friends out there, you can send your hate mail to Father. <laughs> yes, <Graver. laughs> please do. And you know, and I, and I, I love, I love the stance the Continuum has taken. But that that area is something that I have an issue, and and it, and it has historically been a problem with you know our our parish came from the Continuum, and some of that kind of thing has historically been a problem. Um, with us, which which is probably why I do have such a reaction against it. But it's it's a great
1: point, and it's important because um, it, I mean that kind of gets into this other issue of of once you have sort of determined that you are among the Orthodox within an institution or a branch of the church, the institutional church that um, is perhaps veering in away from orthodoxy, then you get people trying to course correct, and sometimes in really good ways, and sometimes in awkward and strange ways, um, and I would say that that's, that's the sort of thing that I'm, I have become sort of very sensitive to, and, and I look at a community, and I say, well, what, what, is, what is, why does this community exist? And what right. were their what was what were the events that drew them to band together, and and what behaviors or um, sort of tertiary or even lower agreements have they come to to sort of protect themselves from a particular threat of the moment from the past that may be actually damaging or or keeping them from. Uh, Uh, actually assessing other threats in the present. And I think that's a perfect example of sort of, you know, high churchmen who I think we all will agree with uh, these complaints of the modernist uh, 79 prayer book and um, uh, innovations when it comes to uh, the male um, uh, nature of the pastoral office in holy orders. And um, so, you know, we're, we're all sympathetic with that, but it's like, well, okay, what were the measures that were attempted to sort of safeguard, and how have those measures formed these communities in ways that um, may or may not actually um, be classically Anglican? And so that's, that's not just a continuing problem. That's that's a problem for, you know, there, there was... Uh, Conservative charismatic movement in Anglicanism, and and I think, quite frankly, some of our low church evangelical friends um, are more defined, have defined themselves more as a reaction to the Oxford movement than any of their forebears, who they look up to, right. would have. You know, and so, and so anybody can do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I know Anglicans on the more the the more lower church side who. Have adopted, you know, say the, the the Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism as definitive, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the way they understand the faith. And again, you know, that's 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 not our tradition, you know. And the sacramental theology in some of those are in contradiction to our formularies. And so, right. Yeah. You know, th- those. I mean, those are those are problematic. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know.
0: It comes to the problem of discipline. Uh, within our own communions, you know, to me that's why uh, the ACNA, you know, coming up with a uh, new book of common prayer. I know they're going to, or at least as I understand it, the uh, other traditional books of common prayer, 1662, American 1928, uh, and others will still be allowed for use, uh, which is good. We need to keep the traditional uh, language, traditional prayer books alive. But this new prayer book that's being instituted is important and crucial because. This kind of partisanship we see within our own communion can be easily remedied by pointing back to the prayer books, and uh, right. for ACNA, you know, we uphold the 1662 um, uh, over and above others. And so, what's at the end of the 1662? Well, the Thirty-Nine Articles are attached, and to the point you're making, mm-hmm. Father Isaac, it's not the Westminster, you know, it's not Heidelberg, it's not anything else. There's a lot of good things to be drawn from those, uh, you know, other. Uh, confessions and catechisms, you know, I'm not saying that they're worthless, but as Anglicans, we are governed by what is within that prayer book, the Oramon, the 39 articles, and that's where we should look to. Uh, yep. In addition to those first five centuries, uh, the ecumenical creeds, or excuse me, the ecumenical, yes, the ecumenical creeds, and also the ecumenical councils that, that are undisputed.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, and, and to take it from the Anglican perspective and and sort of uh, zoom back out to this issue we were discussing over just how a church becomes liberalized. Um, I think, you know, my my perspective on this sort of thing is that you can have a perfect church on paper. And I know we sort of discussed this in the last episode, but even the perfect church on paper can and will be a taken astray by activists, by people with agendas, and so you always have to account for the human element here, and I, I think sometimes you know, when we when we notice that, boy, things are getting crazy, you know, and, and, and sometimes you have to take measures to to secure what's, you know, what's orthodox from, from an error, but, um, You know, very often what we find is that people, because of their partisanship within the Anglican uh, fold, will try to secure that orthodoxy at the expense of something else that was always sort of permissibly and authentically Anglican. And so you've got, in many ways, uh, I would say, this is my opinion. So send your hate mail to fake mailbox at miserableoffenders.com. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the document that, uh, that the, the Anglican or continuing Anglican communion um, sort of organizes
2: itself by... Someone remind me of the name. I'm sorry. Uh, it, the uh, Affirmation of St. Louis, which is a pretty yes. good document. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I... Yes. There's a couple of areas where I wouldn't have been able to sign on the dotted line, not because I disagree with what's there. I just disagree with its level of authority they're giving. But, um, right. but it's a pretty good document. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: I and I will agree with you that it's a pretty good document. But what worries me is that it's a document that forms a church that someone like J.I. Packer couldn't be a part of.
2: Exactly.
1: and Exactly. It's, and in the same way... Um, you know, I think that, uh, if you look at the issues of the formation of the Reformed Episcopal Church and the Declaration of Principles, um, and, and I understand that there are sort of, uh, a modern interpretation of those that is more classical, but it really does seem to me that if you take them at face value, there's some stuff in there that, and again, hate mail at fake mailbox at miserablefenders com. <laughs> <laughs> There's some stuff in there that would make um, high churchmen, you know, would would make the formation of a church that high churchmen could not be a part of, and um, you know, it. I I would love to be corrected in in uh, both respects, but it does to me speak to. This tendency we have to say, well, you know, why we're in this situation? It's those guys we've been, you know, scuffling with for since forever, you know, <laughs> and so the evangelicals blame the Anglo-Catholics, name Anglo-Catholics blame the evangelicals, and and I am of the perspective that is sort of, uh, I guess, influenced by C.S. Lewis, who said, you know, you guys are the the, the churchmen, the two parties who actually agree on the supernatural Christian faith mm-hmm. and you have the most to share in the creedal and biblical orthodoxy and you, 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 know, you, you actually believe that Jesus was both God and man and all of these things and, and yet you're still at each other's throats and that, that you should sort of be celebrating this, uh, you know, what he calls mere Christianity or deep churchmanship and, um, you know, so I, I just think that that kind of perspective uh, as Anglicans um, is one that maybe needs to be retrieved. And uh, but the only thing way I think we can do that is by actually articulating the Orthodox center that is found in scripture, prayer book, 39 articles, you know, for us in a way that both sides can can kind of. Uh, learn to approach one another or around this common, uh, agreed, uh, set of, of uh, doctrines. So, you know, that's that's my two cents. I, I think we always have to be careful of the the ways that we seek to root out liberalism and make sure that we're not rooting out our friends in the process. You know. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And for those like who are listening, because I can imagine. Someone who's inquiring about Anglicanism is saying, "Well, there's all these parties fighting against each other. Isn't it just easier just to become Roman Catholic or to go Eastern Orthodox?" Mm. And I would just say that look, theological debate happens within each of these communities. I mean, yep. You look at the the emphasis or the emphases of like uh, Jesuits, Franciscans, Dominicans. Uh, the Roman Catholics are certainly more Augustinian than not, but there's Augustinian versus what. Some of us, in Anglicanism or Protestantism, would, would say is a semi pelagian position still. Um, with Eastern Orthodox, you certainly have a, pretty much an absence of Augustinianism, although there are some Augustinians right. in there. They're a minority, and they're having to fight the battle internally. So even within you've got, yes, yeah, got like the
2: old calendars and the new calendars, and exactly. you know, and fighting over territory. I mean, it's it's everywhere.
0: Yeah, it is, and for anyone who has. Who is inquiring? I I encourage you to look deeply at each of these traditions. Look into the history. I'm I'm a history major, so I enjoy it, but it will help inform any claim of one true church to look at the history. Uh, Because I'll just point out the the Western Schism, also known as like the Papal Schism, in like the late 1300s to the early 1400s. You had at at one point three popes uh, who (laughs) each had you know vast. empires backing them. The Holy Roman Empire backed one uh, so-called Pope. You had France and England backing another one, and then you had, uh, as I recall, Italy and some of the Slavic countries backing another one. And eventually, the College of Cardinals had to um, assist in organizing a, a council, I think it was the Council of Constance, and forced two of them to resign, elect a new Pope, and the third one basically said, pound sand, and he continued with his own so-called Roman Catholic Church I think exiled in France, as I recall, for another generation or so. So you never see any sort of perfect strand or perfect history uh, within uh, either one of the major communions of Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. So that's the reason why, to me, I'm Anglican by conviction and the foundations of our faith, looking to the 39 Articles, which essentially looks back to uh, the early church and sticks solidly to the scriptures uh, overall is why I remain a convinced Anglican. I'm informed by the other communions, I love our brothers and sisters in other communions, but I'm convicted that Anglicanism is the most faithful to uh, the church of history, uh, to the overarching Orthodox and Catholic Church. It's not the one true church, but it's the most faithful uh, on our best days. On our worst days, days, (laughs) worst (laughs) days. It's pretty bad, and I'm the first one to admit that, but the, the doctrine is there, the teaching is there uh, may God rise up more faithful uh, the bishops and priests and deacons and laity uh, to stick to our formularies
2: I'd say amen to all that, yeah Agreed, yeah,
1: I think once you admit that um, it's messy all around then you can free yourself up to um, instead of trying to find a church that's the safest or that's safe you try to find a church that teaches what is actually true Mm -hmm. And, um, if that's your first order of business, then you are in good company, uh, on this podcast. But, um, on that note, I think it's about time we, uh, close it up here, fellas. And, um, I definitely look forward to, uh, joining you again to discuss, uh, Roman numeral section six of Moore's essay.
0: It's been great. Y'all have a good one.
2: Until next time.
0: It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building.
2: I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the the glory of of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n o r t h a m anglican.com.